Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Farzee Masugian, the host of the Chiefs Zone Podcast. I appreciate all of you taking time out of your day, downloading and listening to this episode. Hope you all had a fine weekend as spring weather has finally arrived in Kansas City. Starting to feel more like spring now. I know it officially started a while ago, but this is the official spring weather uh, that's arrived in Kansas City. So hope you guys have been enjoying that in the Kansas City area. And if you're not in Casey, hopefully you guys have had that kind of weather uh, at least for a while. But if not for a while, hopefully you have it by now. Lots of stuff to get into on this episode. Another good episode here lined up for you. Daniel Harms from Arrowhead Guys. He will join us later in the podcast. Daniel is uh, a film analyst for Arrowhead Guys, and I've never had a film analyst before. I know a lot of people do this on social media now, and people really enjoy this kind of stuff. They always retweet the uh, videos that they share online, so uh, Daniel's going to be joining us. First time we've ever had a film guy on our podcast, so I'm very excited to have him on. I've been wanting to get Daniel on for a couple of months now. Uh, He and I have been uh, connected for a while, uh, and he asked me to check out some of his work. And I like what he posted over at arrowheadguys.com. So check out Daniel, and uh, he'll be joining us here on the podcast. Jamal Charles gave an interview to TMZ recently, and he said that he belongs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Does he belong in the Hall of Fame? We'll look at his numbers, and we'll do a little comparison and see if he does belong in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I'll give my opinion on that. The Kansas City Chiefs have signed a new quarterback, Keith Reeser, from the... AAF, the Alliance of American Football, which uh, they, I don't think they ever announced officially that they folded, but all of their players are now going to the NFL. So we'll talk about Keith Reeser joining the Chiefs, coming back to Kansas City, in fact. His second stint with the Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, making headlines as he was in Minneapolis rooting for his Texas Tech Red Raiders in the Final Four, and they will be playing in the National Championship game tonight, Monday night, if you're listening after Monday uh, and an, another celebrity photo uh, with, with with Patrick Mahomes. So we'll talk about that as well. And also in our closing segments, we'll talk about Kauffman Stadium, Arrowhead Stadium, for a reason. Uh, I'll bring that up a little bit as there are a couple of big events this weekend. The Final Four being one of them that are taking place in big stadiums. Uh, WrestleMania being the other. Could Could Kansas City ever host an event like that down the road? Also, Antonio Brown. Just will not let it go. So a lot to get into on this episode. Facebook.com slash Farzine Vesugian. That is my Facebook page. Give that page a like and follow me on Facebook. You can also follow me on the tweet machine over at Farzine21. And you guys can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on Podbean as well. By the way, before we get started, I do want to mention... Uh, I said last podcast, and I've said this for a while now, but if there was ever a do-over mock draft for the 2016 season, I said that Chris Jones and Tyreek Hill for sure have to be in the top five, but if not, at least the top ten, well, I was kind of right. So Lance Zerloin of NFL.com did a redo mock draft for the 2016 uh, draft. He has Chris Jones going number six to Baltimore and Tyreek Hill number ten to the Giants. And keep in mind, these are guys that were not taken in the first round in 2016. And I know a lot of Chiefs fans, they're not encouraged by the fact that the Chiefs are picking 29th. Well, look, when you have as great of a season as the Chiefs had, you're going to pick late in drafts. But 
Don't let that discourage you from the fact that the Chiefs in the past have managed to find a lot of great players outside the first round. Chris Jones, a second round pick. Tyreek Hill, a fifth round pick. You look at recent memory, and not just under John Dorsey, and I know Brett Veach hasn't been around as GM for a long time. Uh, this will, in fact, be his second or his first with a first round pick. So we'll see how he does. But uh, even before John Dorsey, I mean, the Chiefs had been able to find players outside of the first round. Here's a, and I've brought this up many times, but I'll say it again. Here's an interesting history with the Chiefs in the third round. Jamal Charles, Travis Kelsey, Kareem Hunt, Justin Houston. Carl Peterson, uh, he selected Jamal Charles his last draft. Scott Pioli found Justin Houston and... John Dorsey, responsible for Travis Kelsey and Kareem Hunt, guys in the third round. Other guys outside of the first round, Jared Allen was a fourth round pick. Dante Hall was a fifth round pick. So we've seen guys, and we've even seen guys slip in the first round. Uh, Guys like Marcus Peters, uh, he went later than he probably should have. Patrick Mahomes went number 10 overall. If you do that uh, 2017 redo mock draft right now. I, I, I can't imagine anyone going before Patrick Mahomes uh, in, in any of the redo mock drafts at this point. And, you know, does Chicago regret tr- taking Trubisky over Mahomes? I don't know. Uh, obviously, the, staff, the, the coaching staff there now, uh, Matt Nagy, former Chiefs OC, he's not the one who drafted Trubisky. So uh, that's obviously a different dynamic there. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but... Uh, usually you would like for the head coach and the GM to be there to take that quarterback of the future. Uh, whereas in Kansas City, that was the case for Mahomes. So uh, don't be discouraged by the fact that the Chiefs are picking so late in the draft. Because you look at the 2016 redo mock draft by Lance Zerline that I just mentioned. Two Chiefs taken outside of the first round are in the top 10. So don't be discouraged by that when the Chiefs uh, do draft later this month, and even if they do trade outside the first round, and if they don't have a first-round pick on the first day of the draft, hey, look, don't be discouraged by that either. Uh, in 2016, that obviously panned out well for guys like Chris Jones and Tyree Kill. And by the way, I, I do want to say uh, there hasn't been an update on the Tyree Kill situation, but I will say this right now because it is April the 8th, and April the 15th is the first day for NFL teams to go back to practice. NFL teams that have a returning head coach. NFL teams that have a first-year head coach, or if they hired a new head coach, uh, they went uh, back to practice last Monday, April the 1st. So April the 15th, which is going to be a week from today, next Monday, that is when the Chiefs go back to practice. And look, I can assure you, when it comes to media availability with Andy Reid and with the players, and I don't know how the Chiefs are going to allow media availability if they're going to allow key players to step up to the podium. I imagine they're going to put a shielder on Tyree Kill and not let him do any media. Uh, But the topic's going to come up. It's just going to. And I I would imagine if we don't hear anything about Tyree Kill the rest of the week or during the weekend, for sure on Monday, there will be some... Something will be brought up with Tyree Kill. And maybe the Chiefs deflect answers on this, but... Uh, I wanted to bring that up because I thought it was interesting that we had not heard anything for a while. Uh, a, a lot of people are making a big deal of the fact that Tyreek Hill has been Snapchatting again, 
when this story came up about his son's arm and all, Tyreek Hill went silent. on. So I don't know if he's tweeted or if he's posted anything on Instagram, but he was silent on Snapchat for a while. And after, I think, two weeks had passed, he started posting again on Snapchat. So that is something that Chiefs fans uh, had brought up. Someone brought that to my attention. Uh, I don't follow him on Snapchat, but I, I know people have shared his posts online. So I know he's been doing that. So that is something worth keeping in mind. Jamal Charles, he did an interview with TMZ Sports, basically saying that he is a Hall of Famer. In the quote that he gave, he said, some of my numbers look better, uh, look way better than some of the people already in Canton. That tells you what type of player I was. I gave in my all every time I touched the ball. I averaged six yards a carry, basically. Six yards a carry, basically, uh, that's... It's a bit of a stretch there. 5.4 yards per carry on average. Uh, I wouldn't say that's basically six yards a carry, but uh, he he does have the record for uh, highest uh, yard per carry average by a running back in NFL history. Now, some of his stats here, I think you can make a case that he does belong in the Hall of Fame, and you can also make a case against Charles for being in the Hall of Fame. So let me just share you some of Charles's numbers. And I'm not going to give you the exact number, the exact yardage numbers, but I'll tell you where he ranked. And I'll, and I'll explain later why I think this is significant in my opinion. 2009, some, some numbers I will po- point out. 2009, if you remember, Charles, he ran for 1,120 yards. The reason I bring that number up He didn't play a whole lot that year because Larry Johnson was a starter and everyone knows what happened that year with LJ and the drama with the football team. That led to his release and Charles ended up playing the rest of the way. And ever since Charles replaced Larry Johnson, he had more rushing yards than everybody except for Chris Johnson that year. Charles was one yard shy of the top 10. I mentioned the 1,120 yards. Uh, rushing yards in 2009 he was 11th in the NFL that year Ricky Williams was 10th and he was one yard ahead of Charles and keep in mind in the 2009 finale against the Broncos where the Chiefs defeated the Broncos to keep them out of the playoffs Charles uh, the Chiefs had the football at the 20 yard line whoever was a kick returner took a knee in the end zone and the Chiefs took over at the 20 yard line at the time it was the 20 yard line Charles did not want to play. He wanted to let the backup running backs get in a little bit. And had he played, he could have, number one, had the one yard. Number two, he pro- he was having a field day against the Broncos. If you remember, Jamal Charles and Derek Johnson, the two former Longhorns, those guys destroyed the Broncos single-handedly that day. Charles had the 256 rushing yards. And again, starting at the 20, he could have surpassed Adrian Peterson's single-game record for rushing yards. And could have had more than 300 yards. DJ had the two pick sixes against the Broncos in that game. So Charles did not have uh, the the rushing record, nor was he in the top 10 because he wanted to let his teammates come in and play in that last game of the season. 2010, Charles was second in the NFL in rushing yards. He was also second on his own team in carries, which was horrible uh, management by the Chiefs. Uh, I don't know who to blame for that, whether it was Charlie Weiss. I'd like to think not Charlie Weiss. I think that was more of a Todd Haley thing, putting Thomas Jones in way more than Charles. Again, I don't know the logic in that. You know, you know, some things, you don't have to be an NFL head coach to understand certain logic, but 
I don't. I can't fathom the fact that Todd Haley kept feeding the ball more to Thomas Jones than the guy who was leading the AFC in rushing and was second in the NFL in that category. And keep in mind, the Chiefs were first. And Thomas Jones had a good year, but not as good as Charles, which was asinine to see. 2011, uh, Charles tore his ACL in Week 2 in Detroit. 2012, he came back strong. He was fourth in rushing yards despite horrible management by offensive coordinator Brian Dable. Remember him, Brian Dable? Uh, terrible play caller, and for whatever reason, Romeo Cornell as a head coach did not know why there was terrible management in terms of why Charles was getting the ball uh, not as much in certain games. 2013, he was third in the NFL in rushing yards. Phenomenal year that year for Charles, and that's no coincidence that it happened with Andy Reid coming in and helping him go above his potential that year. 2014, he was 13th in rushing yards, just eclipsed the 1,000-yard mark that year. Kind of a step back that year for the Chiefs. That was the only year under Andy Reid. They did not make the playoffs, barely missed that year. 2015, another ACL injury. That happened during the 1-5 start and Charles did not play. 2016, he did play, but his knee injuries resurfaced, so he missed out uh, playing uh, several games in 2016. So in 20, 2009, almost was in the top 10. In 2010, 2012, and 2013, he was in the top 5. In 2014, was just outside of the top 10. So three times, he was in the top 5, and twice just outside of the top 10. Now, here's an interesting stat that I think would hurt Charles's case for getting into the Hall of Fame. Total touchdowns. 2009, he had nine. Uh, this is both uh, special teams, uh, running, re- receiving, and rushing. So keep that in mind. 2009, he did have that kick return touchdown against the Steelers. Uh, that was the game where the Chiefs pulled off the big upset without Larry Johnson. Uh, 2010, he was 31st in touchdowns with eight. Dwayne Bow that year, that was the year he had 15 touchdown grabs. It was second in the NFL that year, so that that was worth bringing up. 2011, ACL injury, so we're not going to uh, mention that. 2012, six touchdowns that year, tying 54th. 2013, he was first in the NFL in touchdowns with 19. Jimmy And again, that's when Andy Reid came in. Jimmy Graham was second, a tight end, second with 16. And in 2014, he was third with 14 touchdown grabs. Uh, as far as total yards from scrimmage, this is an important one. I was unable to find where he ranked in 2009. He was outside the top 10, according to Pro Football Focus. I was not able to find his his his, his exact placement. That would take a while to put together, so I decided to not look into that, into that too much. 2010, he was second. 2011, ACL injury. 2012, he was fifth in total yards from scrimmage. 2013, surprisingly not first. He was second behind LaShawn McCoy. In 2014, he was not in the top 10. And I was surprised by that because that was the year where Kelsey, essentially his rookie year, uh, because that was his first year playing after being injured for all of 2013, Kelsey led the team in receiving yards that year as a as a redshirt rookie, I guess, if you want to call it that. Uh, and Charles was third on the team in receiving yards. And I mentioned that because that was the year the Chiefs did not throw a touchdown pass to a wide receiver. So I gave you the rankings where Charles finished in rushing yards, total touchdowns, and yards from scrimmage. The biggest case for Jamal Charles is the fact that he has the best yard per carry average by a running back. 
Now, there are three players ahead of him, all quarterbacks. Michael Vick has a 7.0. Randall Cunningham has a 6.4 in Mario Motley, uh, who played in the 40s and 50s. So if you watched him play, I I mean, you first off, you know how how technology works with podcasting and how to download him. So big ups to you because... A lot of people your age may not know how to do that, but uh, outside of that, uh, Mario Motley, uh, he had a uh, 5.7 yard per carry average. Charles has a 5.4 yard per carry average, and he has not officially announced his retirement. Played, I believe, just one or two games with the Jacksonville Jaguars this past year. Jim Brown, by the way, he had the record for the longest time. Uh, he had a 5.2 yard per carry average. Now, Charles did say in the quote to TMZ, yes, he does have better numbers than some in the Hall of Fame. There are 13 pre-modern era running backs in the Hall of Fame and 27 modern era running backs in the Hall of Fame. Charles finished with 7,563 rushing yards in his career. A majority of them, obviously, with the Kansas City Chiefs. He, of course, is the uh, all-time leader for rushing yards as a chief. Now, the most recent running back to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame was Terrell Davis of the Denver Broncos. He has 7,607 yards. So Terrell Davis, 44 yards ahead of Jamal Charles, yet he also had 238 more carries than Charles. And this is kind of an area where, look, it's kind of like golf where less is better. Because the more carries you have, and if you don't have as many yards, well, it doesn't look good for your yard per carry average. And obviously for Charles, that's a big case for him. So Terrell Davis, 44 more yards than Charles and 238 more carries than Charles. Now, we got to look at the other side of this. Because Terrell Davis, he also dealt with injuries just like Jamal Charles. In fact, I think Terrell Davis had only three or four really good seasons in the NFL, but They were really, really good to the point where they were Hall of Fame-like numbers. First of all, he had 21 touchdowns. Terrell Davis, that is. 21 touchdowns and 2,008 rushing yards in 1998. And that year, that was the year Terrell Davis earned his second straight Super Bowl. The Broncos won two straight Super Bowls in 97 and 98. Uh, He won Super Bowl MVP the previous year. John Elway won it the second time with the Broncos. So, yeah, it's very easy to say yes to Terrell Davis for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You can say yes to Jamal Charles going in, but it's not very easy. And is that fair to Jamal Charles? Because a lot of people are bringing up the fact that Terrell Davis, he had a 2,000-yard season, and he has two Super Bowl rings. Charles doesn't even have a playoff win. In fact... And 2015, when the Chiefs played the Texans, and I understand the Texans, not the greatest team to make it to the playoffs, but look, coulda, woulda, shoulda, the teams that went in got in. The Chiefs earned, they snapped that playoff drought without Jamal Charles. In 2011, when Charles tore his ACL, the Chiefs started to improve. They barely missed the playoffs that year, but they were able to make that improvement without Jamal Charles. Now, is that... A bad thing for Jamal Charles? I don't know. Uh, I think the Chiefs, they did try to expand and and they looked beyond their Pro Bowl running back once he got hurt because they had to. The thing that I will say about Jamal Charles is this. And I, I pose the question, is that fair to Charles? 
Because Joel Charles did a lot for this Chiefs franchise. It's not his fault that Romeo Cornell was a terrible head coach. It's not his fault that Todd Haley was not a good head coach. Herm Edwards, his previous head coach, fired. Jamal Charles played for three head coaches that got fired. Herm Edwards, briefly, albeit, but still, the guy who drafted you got fired. Todd Haley got fired. And Romeo Cornell got fired. Charles has played for four different coaches in Kansas City. And had... I mean, what, what if Jamal Charles was drafted a little later? What if Jamal Charles... The prime of his career happened to be this year. If there was no Kareem Hunt, and if it was Jamal Charles who played, uh, if it was 2013 type of Jamal Charles in 2018, the Chiefs probably do win the Super Bowl, and they put up probably even better numbers at that point. And maybe Patrick Mahomes doesn't have the 50 touchdowns and 5,000 passing yards because you have Jamal Charles doing his thing, but man... uh, I, I think it's an unfair thing to say because a lot of here's this happens a lot with LeBron James. When the debate comes with Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, who's the best ever? Kobe Bryant is in a distant third. It's it's usually between now there are still some people who compare Kobe and LeBron, but there are more comparisons with LeBron and MJ than there are with LeBron and Kobe. But for the longest time, that was not the case because LeBron, I believe he only had, he didn't have a ring for the longest time. He went to Miami, got a couple of rings, played in eight straight championships. This year, obviously, he won't be playing in one. But now that he went back to Cleveland and he finally won a ring, the debates started to build up a little bit with LeBron and whether or not he's better or is MJ better. But again, people are looking at the rings. And I know LeBron and MJ, that comparison is a completely different one to this Jamal Charles one. But the point I'm trying to get at is people were not willing to give LeBron a reason to be considered as one of the best because he didn't have a championship for the longest time. And I don't know if that's a fair thing to say. I know Michael Jordan didn't have the greatest supporting cast. It doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but he had a good supporting cast. And let's not forget his head coach, Phil Jackson, who has, what, 11 championship rings? Kobe Bryant, the other guy who Phil Jackson coached. Let's not forget, Kobe Bryant had Shaquille O'Neal, won three championships with him. And then, after Shaq left, well, they brought in Lamar Odom, they brought in Pau Gasol, they brought in Andrew Bynum, and that helped the Lakers win two more championships. They appeared in a couple of more with Kobe Bryant, uh, post-Shaquille O'Neal era. So, these guys had other help. LeBron didn't have help for the longest time, and that's a big reason as to why he could not capture an NBA title. Jamal Charles, is it his fault that he doesn't have a Super Bowl, Super Bowl ring? Because even during the back, let me say this too about Jamal Charles. He had a lot of great years, and most of those great years were during bad seasons for the Kansas City Chiefs. In 2008, when uh, LJ had that four-game suspension, Jamal Charles did very well. In those four games, 2009, again, another bad year for the Chiefs. Charles just finished outside the top 10. We brought that up. Uh, 2010, that was the only good year for the Chiefs during that 2007 through 2012 era of really, really bad seasons for the Chiefs. Uh, 2012, worst season in Chiefs history. Uh, The Chiefs, uh, Jamal Charles was fifth that year in rushing yards. 
And then he had some success in 2013 and 2014 before he had the, the those knee injuries again. So a majority of Jamal Charles' great years came during bad seasons. And again, Charles did his job during those years, but the coaching staff was not very good. Uh, quarterbacks, I mean, who'd you have? Uh, you had, uh, in 2008, you had so many different quarterbacks that year. Uh, in 2009, 2010, and 2011, you had Matt Castle. Uh, in 2012 as well, you also had Brady Quinn that year. And then you had Alex Smith come in. And that's, uh, of course, Andy Reid also coming in. And they helped change the direction of that franchise. So Jamal Charles, again, yeah, I, I get it. He doesn't have a ring. He doesn't even have a playoff win under his belt. But I don't know if that is his fault. Because, listen, man, as a running back, you can only do so much. Especially in an era where Charles played where down-for-down down running backs really did not exist a whole lot. And they don't really exist a whole lot anymore. Very few down-for-down down running backs nowadays. Kareem Hunt was one of them. Uh, and we'll see if he can continue to do that once he returns from his suspension. As But as far as Charles goes, man, he he split a lot of time with, with a lot of running backs. Jackie Battle, Thomas Jones, Larry Johnson, obviously another one. It didn't necessarily split time with him, played a lot behind him. In fact, he was really low on the depth chart that year, as I recall. So Jamal Charles was in an era where, look, he had a lot of bad situations. And again, it wasn't even the leader in carries on his team in certain years. And was still getting the job done for his football team when his number was called. Here's my thing. Here's my criteria for getting into the Hall of Fame. Number one, you got to have good stats. Number two, Super Bowls. That's another important one right there. Number three, were you one of the best players at your position for multiple seasons? And for me, number one and number three are important for Jamal Charles. Charles cannot use number two as a strong case, obviously. It doesn't even have a playoff win. Now, I do have a fourth uh, bullet point here on my criteria list, and it was whether or not you had epic moments coming through in the clutch. Uh, it, it obviously helps if you do it even more so in playoff games or in primetime games or in games against great teams. That obviously helps. Uh, if you look at Patrick Mahomes, Right now, and I know the debate for him is way too early, but still, uh, you can make the case for Mahomes that, you know, in his young career so far, he had that epic comeback win against the Denver Broncos on Monday Night Football. Uh, I know that's one of the more epic moments uh, when uh, his name escapes my mind right now. Uh, Joe Montana, when he was in Kansas City. Uh, that Monday Night Football game against the Broncos. I, I mean, that was the epic. When people think of Joe Montana's run in Kansas City, people think of that moment right there. That was one of the more special moments in Chiefs history. And it was Joe Montana right there as a quarterback. Again, coincidentally, Monday Night Football in Denver. Patrick Mahomes had that nice come-from-behind win, 10-point come-from-behind win in the fourth quarter against the Broncos, and he did a lot in that football game. Statistically speaking, not so much, but if you watch that football game, you know Mahomes did some special things in that game to keep the Chiefs alive. The comeback win against the Baltimore Ravens, again, that's another epic moment right there that will be remembered for Patrick Mahomes, one of many, hopefully, for uh, the rest of his career. But again, my point is, when the time comes for Patrick Mahomes to be a Hall of Famer, one of the key points will be, Epic moments, and he had a couple of those in 2017, or excuse me, 2018. 
with the Chiefs. And look, I'll even throw 2017. I, I, I know I didn't mean to say that, but uh, the win against the Denver Broncos his first year, uh, game-winning field goal as time expired. I know that was a backup bowl kind of game, preseason type of game, but uh, still a pretty good game from Patrick Mahomes. Uh, first time ever playing in the NFL. So you get the idea. Jamal Charles, I don't really know if he had anything like that where he had like game-winning touchdowns necessarily, but he just had really dominant stats during the years that he played. So here's my final answer on this. Jamal Charles is absolutely a pro football Hall of Famer. However, it's going to take him a very long time. Look, there are a lot of amazing candidates that did not get the nod, the final nod, to get into pro, into the Pro Football Hall of Fame this year. It took Derek Thomas a very, very long time to get in. It took Will Shields a couple of years to get in. There are a lot of great players from the 60s, pre-merger. Players who have not gotten in yet, or it took them a while to get in. Look at Johnny Robinson, safety for the Chiefs, or formerly a safety for the Chiefs, just recently got elected into the Hall of Fame. His final season was 1971. It took him 48 years to get elected into Canton. So it takes a while sometimes, and I think Jamal Charles, unfortunately for him, He's going to be in that category where, because he did not have any postseason success, it's going to take him a little bit of time to get into the Hall of Fame. Derek Thomas, again, incredible numbers for Derek, record-breaking numbers for Derek Thomas. The, the The most notable moment for him was the seven sacks, despite the loss, even though that eighth sack is the one he missed, the, the crucial one that led to the loss. But uh, people do still remember the seven sacks, in a single game, uh, held by a DT, uh, and I think because of the lack of success that Chiefs team had in the 90s, uh, not a lot of success in the postseason after 1993, the 93-94 season, and I think that could be a reason why it took Derek Thomas a while to get in. Uh, Will Shields, again, phenomenal guard. I don't think you could have found a better guard in the NFL during the years Will Shields played. But again, I think because of the lack of postseason success under Will Shields, maybe that's the reason why it took him a long time to get elected. Uh, listen, they're going to be players from the Patriots teams. Uh, you, you, players that won the first three Super, Super Bowls. They're going to be players from that Patriots era that it'll take them a while to get in. Tom Brady will get in the moment he is eligible. Now, I know there was a suggestion that, hey, look, maybe... Brady should, uh, Brady and Belichick should be allowed to get in right away because it's ridiculous for them to wait a while. And I can understand that that debate, uh, but that's not the point here. My point is, uh, he'll he'll get in right away. But uh, Ty Law, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Ty Law, this was his first year of eligibility, and he got in right away. Again, I could be wrong on that. Don't don't quote me on that. But I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I do recall this being his first year eligible. I could be wrong on that, but. Uh, He's the first, Ty Law is the first Patriot from the Super Bowl years to get into the Hall of Fame. There are going to be players from the Patriot. Maybe Mike Vrabel, maybe it takes Vrabel a while to get in. Maybe it's going to take Teddy Bruschi a while to get in. It's going to take a while for some of these guys. And don't get me wrong, Ty Law, phenomenal player. Obviously, he played a couple of years in Kansas City. Not as great, of course, as he was with the Jets and Patriots, but... I, I'm a little surprised that Ty Law got in before Teddy Bruschi. A little surprised by that. Teddy Bruschi 
hasn't even gotten in yet. His last season was 2008. Ty Law's last season was 2009. So again, my point here is because Chiefs fans complained when Derek Thomas took forever to get in. Chiefs fans complained when Will Shields was not a first ballot Hall of Famer. There are, if you look at the list, and by the way, Therese Paler, who is a friend of the podcast, he's been on this podcast before. I know Therese Paler uh, is a Pro Football Hall of Fame voter. In fact, he uh, built the case for Tony Gonzalez to get in. Uh, whenever we get Therese on, the next time we get him on, I want to bring this up with him because there is a long list of candidates that don't get the final nod. There are a lot of great players that barely miss out on the fi- on the Hall of Fame uh, this year and maybe even last year. I want to ask Therese, just how difficult is this? Because I think looking from the outside as Chiefs fans, oh, yeah, of course we're going to root for our, our players, uh, or former players, I should say. Uh, but I think as Chiefs fans, we forget about the fact that there are other players who, who did remarkable things during their illustrious careers. And they also have valid reasons as to why they should be in right away. But don't. Uh, you can only put so many in the Hall of Fame. There's a limited number you can put in each year. And it is a difficult thing to to get, to accomplish, getting into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, as the years go on, you're going to have to expand that number because you're going to have more and more former players as time goes on. Uh, so that number is going to have to be expanded at some point. Obviously, I think one of the things that the Pro Football, I don't know if this has been brought up, this is speculation on my end, but... Uh, with some of the players in the 50s and 60s, uh, th- those who are still alive, uh, you you you'd like to give them their their Pro Football Hall of Fame moment before they are deceased. Uh, obviously, we know what happened with Derek Thomas. Unfortunately, he was not able to live and enjoy his moment. Uh, not that you shouldn't elect him anyway, but uh, I, I imagine there is some sort of a need to maybe elect certain guys. Before they pass away, I don't know if that's something that's in the minds of Hall of Fame voters. I, th- that's just again speculation on my, on my end. But again, uh, whenever we can get Therese Paler on here, that is something I would love to bring up with him because he is a Pro Football Hall of Fame voter and he built a very strong case for Tony Gonzalez. Not that it, it was a difficult thing to do, but still did a tremendous job in the uh, in the Hall of Fame meeting during Super Bowl week. Let me know your thoughts on this. We already have a post on this going on Facebook. Again, I think he gets in. I think it takes a very, very, very long time for Charles to get in. That is my answer on that. Let me know your thoughts. Facebook.com slash Farzine You can also send me a tweet at Farzine21. couple of Chiefs news to get into. Uh, quarterback Keith Reister, who played in the AAF for the Orlando Apollos, he is coming back to Kansas City. He played for the Chiefs from 2017 to 2018. He was the AAF Defensive Player of the Week in Week 2. He had a couple of interceptions that week. I believe he had three interceptions. He had all he had a pick six this year as well. And he was one of the more notable players in the AAF. Not just defensively speaking, but one of the more notable AAF players uh, this year. In their only year. Uh, Again, kind of unfortunate. By the way, it is kind of hypocritical of the NFL to basically say, hey, no, we don't want to help the AAF. We don't care for a developmental league yet. They're taking in a lot of these AAF players. Some of them formerly in the NFL, sure, but they were very quick to snag some of these guys. Someone on the Facebook page joked about how uh, the NFL is changing their tampering policies right now, which I got a chuckle from that. 
Uh, now listen, okay, I get it, the NFL doesn't have any obligation whatsoever to the AAF. But, at the end of the day, uh, to say you don't want a developmental league, but you're very interested in all of these players, uh, I, I, I do take an issue with that. Look, I don't think a developmental league would hurt, would hurt at all. Look at NFL Europe, I think that benefited some players. Uh, and even teams, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they, the NFL, uh, announcers for, for those games, they pointed out who these guys, uh, were with. And I think that helped maybe give some notoriety to these players and even to these teams. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I just, I just feel like a developmental league would help more than hurt the NFL, but obviously they disagree. Again, uh, I'm just a guy doing this podcast. Uh, there's a reason why. People in the NFLPA have their jobs, and I'm here doing this. So keep that in mind as well. Uh, you can take what I say with a grain of salt, or you can take it with value, whatever you wish. Uh, take it for what it's worth to you. Uh, but again, it, it's one of those things where you obviously see value in these players. So clearly, the NFLPA does see value in a developmental league, but don't seem to want to admit it. But again, the, the biggest news uh, as far as transactions go with the Chiefs Keith Reeser, he has signed and returning to the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, I'm sure you guys have seen this all over social media. I, I shared this on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Mahomes obviously was in Minneapolis for the Final Four. He's He's been getting this big guy treatment quite a lot. He's He's been getting a lot of tours. I know uh, his father did play for the Minnesota Twins, and I uh, saw him on his social media, he was getting a tour of Target Field, which is where the Minnesota Twins play. And he got courtside seats uh, with uh, his girlfriend and Travis Kelsey and uh, his girlfriend. I don't know if they're married or what the story is, but uh, they were at the Texas Tech uh, Michigan State game. And they showed Mahomes quite a lot uh, during that game, uh, especially near the end. Uh, Texas, uh, Michigan State kind of made it interesting. But uh, Texas Tech managed to pull away. By the way, Texas Tech could not miss at all. In the second half, it felt like. Uh, there was even that really terrible shot that hit the top of the backboard and almost went in. It was like everything was falling for Texas Tech. It's like they were paying tribute to Patrick Mahomes in the offensive season he had for the Chiefs. It just seemed very fitting that it was a former Texas Tech Red Raider that they were paying tribute to. So, uh, just a really good game for, for Texas Tech. And I'll get into the championship in just a moment. Uh but obviously, Mahomes, uh, he was out and about. And again, another uh, celebrity sighting with uh, Mahomes. Candace Parker took a photo with Mahomes and shared it online. And everybody else in Kansas City sharing that as it's going viral as well. And by the way, I mentioned Travis Kelsey. I think this is worth bringing up. Uh, a lot of people are talking about this, especially with Rob Gronkowski's retirement. Uh, Mercedes Lewis, who was a 13-year veteran tight end in the league, he said that Travis Kelsey is the best tight end in the NFL uh, now, I've said for a while, I still think even before Gronk's retirement, Kelsey was better. And people will say, yeah, but Gronk was hurt a lot. Okay, staying healthy is part of it, folks. Again, look at Jamal Charles. We just talked about this. I think it's going to take him a while to get into the Hall of Fame because he didn't have as many good years and injuries setting him back a little bit. You cannot sit there and say, well, this guy was injured, so I think he deserves to be a first battle Hall of Famer. You could say that for a lot of players. Uh, look... Injuries suck, man. They just do. They really, really do. They are part of sports in a very unforgiving way. I've said that so many times. And you can't sit here and play the what-if game because injuries derailed 
somebody's career. Uh, it is what it is sometimes. Uh, but I, I still think even uh, then, Kelsey was better than Gronk because uh, Gronk was unavailable so much for the Patriots. Uh, look, yeah, sure, Gronk was able to do so many great things that a lot of tight ends were unable to do. The, the, the things we saw from Gronk, I don't think we've seen any tight end do. Uh, the guy looks like an offensive lineman and he's going out there catching passes and running with great speed. But the bottom line is, as great as he was, if you're injured and missing a lot of games or if you're playing through injury, well, then you can't be able to put up those kinds of things. I still think Gronk is a future Hall of Famer while we have this Hall of Fame discussion on this podcast. Don't get me wrong. I think Gronk will get in. But I still think Kelsey has been the best tight end for a while. Keep in mind... He broke the record for most receiving yards by a tight end in a single season. That was broken an hour later by George Kettle of the 49ers. Uh, but you know, Kelsey is obviously one of the best when he's able to do things like that, especially on an offense where he had a 1,400-yard receiver with Tyreek Hill. That definitely not easy to do. To have 1,300 receiving yards when you've got somebody else on your team who had 1,400 yards, and keep in mind, even before Kareem Hunt uh, got released, uh, obviously Kareem Hunt was, what, I think top three in total yards from scrimmage? That was difficult to do. That's not easy for, for Kelsey to be able to get that record the way he did it. Again, I know it was just for an hour, but still very impressive for Kelsey to be able to do it that way, and I think that's why he's been one of the best, or even the best, ahead of Gronk for a while. Let me know your thoughts on that or anything else we've discussed here. Facebook.com slash Farzine Vesugian. Twitter.com slash Farzine21. Joining us right now on the Chief Zone podcast is Daniel Harms. Writes for a website that you guys may have heard of or maybe you have not heard about it at all. It is one of the newer Chiefs blogs out there. Uh, Arrowheadguys.com. Daniel Harms is one of the film analysts for Arrowhead guys, and he's generous to give us a few minutes of his time to be on the podcast. Daniel, welcome into the podcast. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you making some time for us. I know uh, this is a new website that you guys have at Arrowhead Guys. Uh, give us spend a minute or two if you don't mind. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Arrowhead Guys and, and what that's all about. And maybe I, I mentioned that you do some film study for them, but maybe explain a little bit more about what you do for the website, for those who may not know. Yeah, no problem. So Arrowhead guys got started up around December. There was some, obviously, some things that had to go on beforehand, but I was reached out to by the guy that runs it, uh, Anthony Stratton, to come be the lead film analyst. And, you know, we do everything, breaking news, film, and since it's the offseason, we do a lot of different discussions like we have Friday Night at the Movies where I and myself and Adam Jones we talk about whatever kind of movies we want to talk about that week for example this last week we did um, childhood movies that stick with you and I had arachnophobia so it was just just a lot we have a lot of fun stuff going on out there and uh, it's been one of the best experiences I've had in my life so far just to help this uh, website get up and running if you guys want to follow Daniel on Twitter, it's D underscore harms 19. Uh, again, go check him out on Twitter. He does a lot of great stuff with film study on social media. I know there are a few people who do that with Chief, with Chiefs work and 
Uh, outside of the NFL as well, a lot of people love those kind of gifts, gifs. I don't know, Dan, what do you call those, Daniel? Are, are they called gifs or gifs? I've always been a gifs person. I don't really understand the, the gif. I, I mean, I've always thought gif as a peanut butter, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I agree. It, it is GIF, but uh, I, I know people love those kinds of things. That they're always retweeting them and, and sharing those kind of posts, and Daniel does a lot of great stuff with that, so go check him out. And uh, I, I've never had a film person on the podcast before, so I'm very excited. I was very uh, excited to have you on the podcast, Daniel. Let's start with this, because... This is a this is a transition off season once again. Last year, the Chiefs were transitioning from Alex Smith to Patrick Mahomes. Now they're transitioning from the three four defense to the four three defense, and I think there's a lot to really take in right there. Obviously, a lot of changes on that defensive front, trading away a couple of outside linebackers uh, in, in D four, and releasing Justin Houston, not trading him. I, I should I, I should say, uh, but but there are some changes being made uh, with the front seven, and now you're going to see guys shift around on that position. Uh, let's start with, uh, with Chris Jones, obviously had the best season that he's had in his young three-year career, had, uh, 15 sacks and, uh, had the NFL record for most consecutive games with a sack. Uh, but now there's that speculation that he's going to transition into a defensive tackle position after playing, uh, defensive end in, in the three, four. I'm curious from the film study that you have done with Chris Jones, uh, what do you think, uh, about his future as a 4-3 defensive lineman, how do you think he's going to do in that area? Well, when you're looking at a 4-3 under specifically, it has many similarities with the 3-4 that the Chiefs ran in the past with Bob Sutton. The main difference is instead of it being outside linebackers, you have the Sam linebacker now, which kicks off the end of the left or the weak, the weak side of the line, and he can either rush the passer or he can go and be in coverage and it makes the transition for them easier. So really the transition from the four, from the three, four to the four, three will be relatively smooth and Chris Jones responsibilities will change. Not very much. He's going to be able to shoot the gaps and still attack the, uh, the quarterback at, at will. Basically he's not going to have all that many responsibilities that change just because of the defensive shift. You know, I, I think the linebacker position is another interesting one, too, because Anthony Hitchens did play in the 4-3 as a linebacker in Dallas, and Reggie Ragland, he's never played, unless I'm wrong on this, correct me if, if you know the answer to this, but I don't think he's ever played uh, in, a, in a regular season game. However, when he was with Buffalo, I know he did practice in the 4-3 scheme. Now, two different things, obviously, practicing and playing in a game, but at least he has some familiarity, which is better than nothing. He has that experience as an outside linebacker in the 4-3 scheme. And, and then they bring in Damian Wilson as well, also from Dallas. So reuniting with uh, Anthony Hitchens. I, I'm kind of curious, what, 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 what's your outline with the linebacker position? How do you think Hitchens and Ragland will do in, uh, in a newer position uh, after 2018? Well, I feel that Hitchens going to the probably, in my opinion, should be the Mike linebacker for this defense. And this will give him his best chance to actually succeed in a defense. He came over last year, was in, was out of position. You could tell he was hesitant and, excuse me, he didn't attack downhill as frequently as you would have liked to see from a middle linebacker. But this change for him should uh, allow him to read easier and see the field completely. He'll have the opportunity to be the, the field general for the front seven of this defense. So who do you think the three linebackers, you know, in a in a base four three setting, 
who do you think the three main linebackers would be at that strong, uh, weak and in, in, in middle linebacker? Uh, in my, in my opinion, Hitchens would be the mic. Like I said, uh, O'Daniel should get to start at will linebacker. And I would assume that the new, that Wilson, they brought over from Dallas would be the starting fan. The chiefs don't really have a Sam linebacker at this point outside of Wilson. So I personally don't think that Raglan fits in this defense at all. He doesn't seem to be able to pre-snap read, and he's not exactly the best in coverage either. So, You know, it's interesting you mentioned Dorian O'Daniel. Uh, I, I think Chiefs fans obviously remember him, but I don't think he comes to mind right away. Uh, this is a guy, and I don't remember his pro football focus rating, but I think he was the highest rated inside linebacker from the Chiefs, which again is not saying much because the Chiefs weren't very good at that last year, but from what we did see in Dorian O'Daniel, Chiefs fans were pretty pleased with him and they were hoping that he would get more of an opportunity as the season went along. I'm kind of curious, uh, from the film study you've done of Dorian O'Daniel, what do you think the future holds for him? Uh, hopefully it's going to be in Kansas City for a while, especially if he does well or, or wherever it ends up being in the NFL. What do you think his football future is like? I think he's got a chance to be a, a real star, actually. Uh, at the well linebacker, he's going to have, if he's the starting well, he'll have the opportunity to run around the field. He can cover running backs out of the backfield, tight ends. He's quick enough to, like I said, to, to cover those running backs. He has the the hitting ability, as we've, we've seen with the game against Cincinnati last year where he demolished Joe Mixon. And he just he, he, he identifies very quickly. He is obviously very quick on hitting people and just getting to the point of attack is his strong suit. I think that he's really got an opportunity here to establish himself as a starting linebacker for the Chiefs and really be a hallmark of this defense going forward. I want to get to your predictions for the draft or who you think can come to Kansas City and make, a, make an impact in a moment, but I do want to talk about the defensive ends who the Chiefs brought in, Alex Okafor and uh, Emmanuel Ugba from, from Cleveland in that recent trade with, Cle- with, with the Browns uh, trading away Eric Murray. Uh, a lot of people thought that the Chiefs were going to go after a big-name pass rusher in the first round, maybe even trade up and try to acquire a pass rusher at, at some point. I'm not exactly sure when they would be able to pull that kind of move off, but the anticipation was that the Chiefs were going to go after a pass rusher. But, I mean, Alex Oakford, the guy, maybe not the most... He, 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 by all means, he's not a D Ford or Justin Houston caliber type of guy, but he's someone who can go and get the job done. And to trade for a guy uh, who's been above average, I think, in Cleveland, uh, these are guys who, I mean, they're starting quality type of defensive ends. Do you think the Chiefs go after a pass rusher in the first round or with one of the two second round picks? Or do you think they have their guys uh, as the starters and even the backups with uh, Breland Speaks and uh, Passenger, at least my projected backups and those guys. I, I I think that they have to they they just definitely have to get a pass rusher in the first two rounds. Ogba to me is really a a backup. I I've, I've seen his tape and I'm not overly impressed with his ability to one stop the run or impact the uh, pass rush game. But he's versatile. He can play on the outside. He can play on the inside. So the identity of this defense going forward I think is going to be a lot of you're going to have Speaks, Okafor, and Ogba that all have this kind of bull rush mentality and with the stunts that we expect to see on the defense this this year keeping everyone fresh in a rotation will be extremely important so I for me I feel like the Ogba move was more of a depth to try to keep everyone 
fresh. Okafor has a chance to be pretty decent as long as they go out and get a pass rusher that can help Chris Jones and Okafor not have to deal with so many double teams. So for me, I would love to see them go after Cleveland Farrell in the first round of the of the draft this year. Well, I was going to ask you, assuming the Chiefs don't make a trade if they stay right where, where they are, uh, you know, who do you think they'll go after? But you you gave one name out there. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, elaborate a little bit on that and why you think he'd be a big why he'd make a big impact in Kansas City. And if you have another name out there as well as to who you think the Chiefs would go after uh, in the first round. Uh, Farrell is he's a stud. He can he can play on against the he has a great pass rush, the very a variation of moves and counters that help him get to the quarterback. He's very he's quick off the ball and he's great in the run in the run against the run. He can establish the edge, he gets downhill very quickly, packs those pulling guards and really bottles things up. He's just he's a very versatile end and I think that he would be perfect as <clears throat> excuse me, perfect in this defense. But if they don't, if they don't end up going pass rusher in the first round, say they stand pad at 29 and don't move, I'm very big on Amani Oyawari from out of Penn State. I think he has number one corner written all over him. I know that may be a hot take for some people that like Byron Murphy or Greedy Williams in the first round, but I I love his tape. He's got great. He's a great press a press coverage kind of guy. He's always seeming to be in the hip pocket of the receiver. He has great ball skills, and I just I see him really impacting this defense in a great way. It's just sort of go after him. Daniel Harms from Arrowhead Guys joining us. Give him a follow on Twitter, D underscore Harms19. This is more personal curiosity to me. We, we spent almost, what, 10 minutes talking about the defense, but, man, I think this offense is really fascinating with what they have in Patrick Mahomes and the playmakers that he has to work with, so much speed all around. Any running back that dresses up under Andy Reid just seems to do very well. But you've got a really fast tight end in Travis Kelsey. We'll see what happens with the backup spot. I know they got Blake Bell, the belldozer from Oklahoma. Uh, and also he played uh, quarterback at uh, a high school in Wichita. So uh, we talked a little bit about that last podcast. But the wide receivers, I mean, their names really speak for themselves. And Tyreek Hill, Sammy Watkins... Uh, obviously a lot of speed there. They had Chris Conley in the past who's been known for his speed. I remember uh, in his combine in 2015, he was the fastest player there and one of the fastest players uh, in the combine recently. And also Demarcus Robinson. I don't think his name gets brought up a whole lot, but he has a lot of speed as well. I'm kind of curious, from the film study that you've done with this offense, what is it about these guys, Hill? Because there are a lot of fast receivers in the NFL outside of Kansas City, but these guys seem to do a really good job of creating separation and getting wide open and getting that wide open pass. I'm curious from the stuff that you have seen on film, if you can kind of explain that to guys like myself, why are those guys able to create so much separation and throw off defensive backs the way they do? That's funny you asked that. I was just watching saw Tyree kill against Jalen Ramsey earlier today, and the way that Tyreek gets off the line in press coverage is impressive. He's only this is this last year was his third year in the NFL, his second as a full-time receiver, and he was able to identify when Jalen Ramsey was going to be flat-footed. So Jalen Ramsey is a physical corner, so he gets into you when he gets his his feet flat. Hill knows that he can go around him and get open immediately. These guys are really very crisp route runners. They know how to laterally move around the corner that's on them and press. They know how to maneuver in between uh, zone coverages, 
Sammy Watkins and Tyreek Hill both run phenomenal routes, and that's the biggest reason they get open. They have quick feet and really great hands, Tyreek being a converted running back and from Oklahoma State, I believe. Um, it's just impressive what he's been able to do, the work that he's put in to become one of the best receivers in the NFL. And we forget Sammy Watkins, you know, he's only 25, just 25 years old, and the, he he runs all the routes in the route tree, and he's got top-end speed too. But being on a team with Tyreek Hill kind of puts you in the back seat. Uh, but then we saw Sammy in the ASU Championship game really light it up. So they just they run routes so crisply, and they get separation off of their quick feet and release off the line of scrimmage. Well, I'll even go back one game before the AFC Championship game in that playoff game against the Colts when Sammy Watkins came back, and I think you notice a bit of a difference with the offense. I did see on Fox Sports 1, and I think it was Colin Cowherd's show, his radio show, which is also on TV at Simulcast, but he put up a graphic for the TV viewers, and it talked about the decline in certain numbers with Patrick Mahomes ever since Kareem Hunt was let go with the incident that we all know about. And I don't want to discuss the incident necessarily, but it, it was it was basically brought up that there was a decline in Mahomes' uh, performance. But I think what's not being brought up is Sammy Watkins' injury basically happened right around the same time. So I think people are forgetting about that as well. And we saw a much more vibrant offense in the playoffs when Sammy Watkins did return. Do you kind of feel that way a lot? I, I know you mentioned that he kind of is, he's in the backseat because Tyreek Hill is the number one guy, but do you just feel that there was a much more different offense in the playoffs because of Watkins? Oh, I, I completely agree. If you, you watch the games before, uh, before Hill, I mean, excuse me, before Watkins got hurt, they were putting up historic, historic offensive numbers. And when he got hurt, it obviously coincided with the entire Hunt situation. So what happened was people's I, – I, I think that Hunt got in people's heads a little bit, and they started to think that it was all because of him going away. But the running game was – the running game and the passing game with the running backs was just as productive, if not a little bit more productive, than when Hunt was the main guy. So in my opinion, Sammy Watkins makes this offense go because if you take him away – you put Chris Connolly at the two, and then you can cover. You can double Hill on the outside, and you have to force Chris Connolly to beat your guy one on one, assuming Travis Kelsey's not open. So it, it really hampered the offense a lot, a lot more than people really giving credit for. Yeah, a couple of questions left with you, Daniel. I, I think what the, the biggest one for me, and obviously this was not Patrick Mahomes, it was Alex Smith who did this, but if you remember the Chiefs and Patriots game from the 2017 kickoff game to open up the, the regular season, uh, Travis Kelty and Tyreek Hill, uh, they were on the same side of the field, and that was that play where Tyreek Hill got wide open and the two defensive backs, they, they kind of got lost in the in the midst of Kelsey and Hill being around the same area and Hill makes that great cut vertically and he's wide open. Alex Smith connects with him for a wide open touchdown. Those are the kinds of options you really have. I mean, you you have the ability to do those kinds of things because you have so many playmakers. Uh, do you expect the Chiefs to kind of do more of that where they have Kelsey and, and Hill right beside each other or Watkins and, and Kelsey or maybe even Hill and Kelsey or perhaps even throwing Demarcus Robinson's name out there because, as I mentioned, he's got that kind of speed as well. Uh, did you notice more of that in 2018 or, or did the Chiefs kind of lack that? 
Well, the uh, Andy Reid offense is pretty, especially with Patrick Mahomes now, they move their receivers all over the formation. That They like receivers that are able to play on the outside. They can play in the slot. They can they can do pretty much everything. So the being a, a wide receiver in Andy Reid's offense requires a lot of information, and it takes a long time to become comfortable in the system. So you see Hill come into the slot. Maybe Kelsey goes on the outside. Hill, I mean, Watkins on the outside, or they bring in Robinson or Connolly, and the, just the amount of weapons that they have at any point in time on the field is incredible. Especially uh, this this past year when they went five wide, they went I believe they went five wide more than any other team in the NFL, and they just were surgical and on offense with the, with that formation. So I think that I personally think they're going to take a wide receiver in the first three rounds uh, to help get. Hill and Watkins and Kelsey more one-on-one coverages to open up that offense to even make it make it even more dangerous than it already is. But even even if they don't, they they're going to move the receivers all over the formation like they have under Andy Reid. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that you think that they're going to go after a receiver in one of the first three rounds because that's what I was going to go into. Uh, we've seen it in the past uh, the Chiefs have converted running backs to receivers, guys like Dante Hall. Uh, Dexter McCluster, Tyreek Hill. Uh, some of them have done a little bit better than others. Obviously, Tyreek Hill excelled at that position. Dante Hall, he had his flashes, he had his moments, and Dexter McCluster, I, I would say the, kind of the same thing at the wide receiver position. But uh, I, I'm, I'm curious if you think there might be that running back to wide receiver conversion, or if there is someone just at straight up at wide receiver who the Chiefs could bring in and, and help uh, add to an already dynamic offense. Do you have a name that you'd be willing to throw out there who you think the Chiefs should target? Uh, early in the draft, or maybe even a, a diamond in the rough in the uh, third day of the draft? Uh, I've actually been extremely impressed with a guy, Jalen Hurd, out of Baylor. He's 6'4", 225, and he's a converted running back. At, just imagine a running back at 6'4". That is, that's scary in and of itself, but now this guy's going to be a, a receiver in the NFL. Uh, I've done some mock drafts, and I've seen him around five, the 5 and six. But he's got vertical speed. He has great hands, even for a running back. And I think that he could be an, a, a huge diamond in the rough for any NFL team, possibly the Chiefs, if they wanted to go after him later uh, in the draft. But my personal favorite wide receiver in this dra- in this draft is Hakeem Butler. I've seen all the all his tape, and I I just fell in love with the guy. He's huge. He's got great hands. He can go up. He can get the ball. He's got speed. But that would require them to take him in the first round, and I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to take a fast rusher, like I said. So, all right, hey, good stuff, man. Daniel Harms from Arrowhead Guys, go check out Arrowhead Guys. Go check out Daniel on Twitter again. It's D underscore Harms one nine on Twitter. That is the Twitter handle for Daniel Harms. Hey, Daniel, a lot of great stuff from you. I appreciate you making time for us. I'm sure we're going to talk to you again sometime after the draft. A lot of great stuff. Again, uh, go check out him on social media if you like GIFs, if you like these kinds of video breakdowns. He does it on social media, so go check him out. Daniel, appreciate you making time for us, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Uh, Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Big thanks to Daniel Harms from Arrowhead Guys joining us here on the podcast. Go give him a follow on social media and check out his work at Arrowhead Guys. I will say I do disagree with him on the Emmanuel Ugba comment. I I, I think he's more than a backup. I really do. I think he's going to come into Kansas City and and contribute I, I, and contribute in, in a big way. Uh, 
you know, you don't trade for guys just for them to kind of sit around. I will say trading for Eric, trading Eric Murray away, pardon me. I mean, the fact that there was even trade value in Eric Murray, that's that's still shocking to me. We talked about that a lot last week. But, uh, you know, you, you trade away a safety. And look, the safety position is, is important for Kansas City. The fact that they traded away Eric Murray, and I know there was a great offer on the table, but safety, that, that's a position where the Chiefs are kind of thin at right now. Yes, they have Tyron Matthew, but who else do you have? Sorensen, okay, but you're going to need a little bit more power there too. Sorensen didn't have the greatest season, although in the AFC Championship game, he really came through in some tough moments, had that interception. He was at the right place at the right time when it was tipped from Edelman's hand, and he and Anthony Hitchens, surprisingly, of all people, those two, they came away with a huge stop on fourth down against the Patriots to keep the Chiefs in it and not let the Patriots pull away uh, further with that lead. So, it's interesting to see where the Chiefs are going to go with that safety position. But again, to trade away a safety and get Ugba, uh, again, I don't think Ugba is coming in to, to be a backup. Uh, I, I don't know what to make of that uh, edge rusher position right now. I think it's a very interesting spot right now because you, you brought in Okafor, you traded for Ugba, and you have two second-round backups. Again, recent second-round backups. I keep saying that recently, but I think that's important to note because... Second round draft picks generally can be starters, full-time starters going into training camp, primary guys. And look, I get it. Uh, it's kind of like when D Ford was in Kansas City. Remember him when 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 he, when he was drafted his rookie season? He was behind Tom Bahali and Justin Houston. You're you're not going to start ahead of those guys unless there's an injury that comes up. Which, that did happen uh, for both guys, and that's why D. Ford was able to play uh, more his second year than his first year. But Breland Speaks, yeah, we got to see him because Justin Houston was absent for for a while. Tanel Passanio, okay, we saw him as well because, because of the same reason, because uh, uh, Tom Bahali, his rookie year, and, and uh, it, referring to Passanio's rookie year, by the way, not Holly's. Um And, of course, Justin Houston missed some time, so he and Breland Speaks were in rotation. I just don't know exactly what the Chiefs' mindset is. Let me say this, too, because I think this is something we forget about. As fans and as people, you know, people in the media, people who do podcasts and blogs, we have one opinion, and we seem to, for the most part, universally agree on on what we think are the needs. But maybe the Chiefs don't agree with us. Maybe the Chiefs don't see it that way. A lot of Chiefs fans think cornerback is a big position of need. Maybe the Chiefs don't feel that way. Maybe Chiefs fans feel that running back is a huge need because Kareem Hunt was let go and that's a big wide open spot. And therefore the Chiefs need to address that position. Maybe the Chiefs don't think that at all. Maybe they, they, they're happy with who they have. Keep that in mind as we get closer and closer to the draft. We may think the Chiefs have a certain need, but the Chiefs may not feel that way. What we think and what an NFL team thinks, two different things. I know this is shocking to some people. But keep in mind, uh, like I said earlier, uh, there's a reason why that GMs are GMs and scouts are scouts and head coaches are head coaches for for a reason. They're qualified for their positions. And that's not to say we can't sit here and speculate. Sure, it's fun to speculate and make predictions and do mock drafts and all. But uh, just when we think that we know what's going to happen, it's not really the case. Keep in mind, in 2014, I just mentioned D. Ford, the Chiefs had... Pro Bowl pass rushers with Holly and Houston, yet they still drafted D Ford. 
they may draft a wide receiver in the first round, even though they have a pro bowler in Tyree Kill and another great player in Sammy Watkins. They may still draft somebody else. So I'm not exactly sure. Again, uh, people always ask. Uh, I always chuckle when uh, people in the media ask, ask this to uh, general managers. Uh, what are you going to draft? The best player available or, be- or most important position uh, area of need? And the, always, the common answer is always a mix of both. Uh, and I know people in the media, they just want to get and uh, try to get an answer of who they think they will get. But uh, again, whatever Mel Kuyper has on his draft board is not going to be the same as what Brett Veach has on his board. So keep that in mind as well. Uh, what you see during when you see draft boards during the NFL draft or during the NBA draft, when you see the best available, sometimes that best available guy, according to those analysts, they remain on on the open market for several picks, maybe even a, a full round. I remember talking to uh, players at KU. Uh, their senior year, and one of the things the things I asked them, I said, "Hey, look, we know you have NFL potential. Do you pay, do you pay attention to any of these scouting reports?" And uh, Tobit Apuram, who was briefly with the Chiefs, he played a uh, defensive end uh, with KU. He actually started as a running back, and then he converted back to running back when he came to Kansas City. Uh, Tobit Apuram gave an interesting answer. He said, "Look, I've seen former teammates. I've seen other players." in the conference and in college football projected to go in the first round and they don't even get drafted at all sometimes. Uh, this is project the projection during their senior years, that is. So, you know, you 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 hear that sometimes uh, with these players. Again, when we think we know what's going to happen, we really don't sometimes. So bear that in mind when you look at some of these projections and predictions or even predictions of your own. When you look at NFL teams or if you're looking at just the Chiefs, and what you think is going to happen. Who knows? At 29, for all we know, slim chance that they could draft a quarterback. If there is some really good quarterback who falls, Kansas City might might consider it. Again, slim chance, but crazier things have happened. So that is one thing that we could see with the Chiefs. And not necessarily a quarterback being taken, but my point is maybe the Chiefs go after a player in a certain position where they already have a pro bowler there, but they still want to add on to that for reasons that they will explain in the press conference. Big thanks again to Daniel Harms for joining us. Anything that you want to react or if you guys want to add into anything he said, hey, you're always welcome to do so on social media, facebook.com slash and twitter.com slash one Time to wrap up the show. Let's go around the NFL. Cowboys defensive end Demarcus Lawrence signed an extension. Five-year deal worth $105 million, $65 million in guaranteed money. 14 and a half sacks in 2017, 10 and a half sacks in 2018, plus an interception to go along with his uh, 2018 season. Six forced fumbles in the last two seasons combined. Now, yes, he is a 4-3 defensive end. The reason I'm bringing this up is because Chris Jones... A 3-4 defensive end, likely to convert to a uh, defensive tackle in the 4-3 scheme, uh, as we discussed with Daniel just now. Uh, This is going to be good reference, looking at Demarcus Lawrence. Again, I I know they play defensive end on two different schemes, but they're still defensive linemen. I think that's important to note. And when it comes to contract negotiations, as they continue with Chris Jones' agent, 
and the Kansas City Chiefs, they're going to look at Demarcus Lawrence's new contract and they're going to use that as reference. And perhaps Chris Jones' agent will say, look, this guy got 14 and a half sacks last year and 10 and a half sacks this year. My client had more than that this year and he deserves more than five years, $105 million. So that is going to be something worth looking at when it comes to this Chris Jones deal. We don't know exactly when a new deal could come. It could be it could be tomorrow. It could be right before training camp. could be during training camp, maybe during the 2019 season. But that is something that I think is, is worth uh, keeping an eye on uh, using that Demarcus Lawrence comparison for Chris Jones' deal and other contract talks going on around the NFL. Seattle Seahawks, Russell Wilson. He says he's giving the Seahawks a deadline for an extension, and his deadline is April the 15th. He's on the final year of his $87.5 million contract, which was a four-year deal. According to the Seattle Times, there has been little progress made in contract talks. And again, uh, in a week, Russell Wilson has that deadline, which is also the same day the Seahawks return to practice. The, The teams that have returning coaches return to practice April the 15th. Why are you giving a deadline? What, what's what's beneficial about this? I'm not exactly sure. And look, look, I know there's a lot of talks with Seattle and how they've declined. Yeah, they were a playoff team this year, but they're not, they, they, they don't strike off, they don't just strike you as that dominant team in the NFC anymore, like they were before. And I think Maybe some of that frustration has gotten to Russell Wilson. I don't know. Uh, but to give a deadline on a contract extension, I mean, that's just silly. And look, well, let's just say there isn't a contract offer by April the 15th, or they don't have a, any agreement by April the 15th. Are you going to tell me that in June or July before training camp, if they give you, let's just say they make Russell Wilson the first $200 million quarterback, are you going to tell me Russell Wilson is going to decline that? No way he's declining that. No way. Of course he's not going to decline that. I think it's silly to put a deadline on that kind of thing. You're going to put a deadline on millions and millions of dollars? That's nonsense. Come on, man. By the way, speaking of quarterbacks, Mike Kliss, who's covered the Denver uh, Denver Broncos, excuse me, for a very long time, he is reporting that Mizzou quarterback Drew Locke is visiting the Broncos uh, on Sunday, yesterday, and today, Monday, this is interesting. Bleacher Report has Drew Locke going number 10 in their latest mock draft. And NFL.com's Charles Davis has Drew Locke also going to Denver. USA Today has the Giants trading up to 17 in a trade with the Browns to get Drew Locke. But uh, there is some consensus that the former Mizzou Tiger could go to the Broncos, could come to the AFC West. And that's interesting because this is a team that just traded for Joe Flacco. But again, that didn't stop Chicago from getting Mike Glennon and also uh, drafting Mitchell Trubisky, trading one spot to get him. So that's kind of an interesting uh, report right there. I I don't know what to make of that. But look, uh, NFL teams are smart, man. Yeah, they want to be optimistic and they want to do their best every year. But they know realistically that there's a reason why Joe Flacco lost his job to... A rookie, and a rookie who people are wondering if he'll last long in the NFL. He has that Tim Tebow type of skill set, and that kind of skill set doesn't last very long in the NFL. Look at Tebow. 
Perhaps the media circus could be a reason why he's not here. That's what some people think. But nonetheless, uh, this is a guy who, again, went to Denver, and there's a reason why he was made available. It's not like Alex Smith and Patrick Mahomes where you have a Pro Bowl quarterback ready to be traded with another potential Pro Bowler. Obviously, he ended up becoming a Pro Bowler in Mahomes. He became an MVP. Uh, It's not that kind of situation that the Ravens had. The Ravens made that switch because they were struggling under Flacco and they needed to excel. They needed that jump and they were able to get that with Jackson. Kind of wondering, maybe the Broncos are considering quarterback competition. And that, that look, <laughs> you look at the quarterback situation that they had with Trevor, uh, uh, Case Keenum, rather. Trevor Samuel moved on to Minnesota. Uh, Case Keenum got a big deal. Uh, let's not forget about that. And he has slightly better numbers than Flacco. So the Broncos know that they need to make a push. And if, if Drew Locke does fall to them at number 10, you can't say no to that. That would be very hard to say no to. Let's go out of bounds. Oh man, it has not been good for the Kansas City Royals. They started 2-0 atop the American League, and I get it. They played a bad White Sox team, but hey, better to beat bad teams than to lose to them. Uh, Now the Royals are tied with the Boston Red Sox for fewest wins. Imagine that, being tied with the Boston team. Uh, Tied for fewest wins in the American League right now, although the Red Sox have a worse record. They're they're reigning World Series champions, too, uh, and they're going through that. Uh, again, very early in the baseball season. Uh, but the Red Sox are 2-8, and eight, whereas the Royals are 2-6. and six. The Royals have lost six straight games. That is the second longest active losing streak in baseball behind Cincinnati's eight losses. Uh, Cincinnati won their first game, and they've lost eight straight, kind of like Kansas City won, two, won their first two and now lost since then. Uh, this bullpen for the Royals is brutal. It, the, the prevailing bullpen the Royals had from 2014 and 2015 I saw on social media, somebody posted, uh, I think it was Randy Drizilli, that any lead they maintained from the seventh inning and afterwards, they did. They were able to keep. They never blew a lead. However, the Royals have already blown, if I'm not mistaken, three leads in the seventh inning or later this year alone in eight games. So, not very, not very good uh, for the Royals' bullpen. One of the worst home run hitting teams, too, to start off the season, but... That's always been common with this team. Even uh, in 2014 when they got to the playoffs for the first time in 29 years, 95 home runs, fewest ever uh, home runs hit by a playoff team. One of four teams to have fewer than 100 home runs this decade. So, uh, But bullpen, man, uh, gosh, it is, uh, it's It's going to be bad for the Royals this year. Uh, which is unfortunate because they have a lot of new faces at, at starting pitching. Danny Duffy not there yet, dealing with that injury. And still, this, this starting pitching unit, they're doing really good right now. But this bullpen not coming through. And that's going to hurt the Royals quite a lot this year. Uh, Auburn fans, by the way, uh, they're hurt from that call. Uh, let me just say this. The, the missed double dribble call. It kind of reminds me of the missed interference call with the Saints. Now, let me say this. I did watch the second Final Four game between Texas Tech and uh, and Michigan State. I did not watch Auburn and Virginia. I just saw the, the highlight at the end where Auburn, uh, they uh, fouled the guy, and before that was the, double tri- the, the missed double dribble call. Let me just say this. 
I didn't watch any of that basketball game, but I can assure you that in the 40 minutes of that game, Auburn got away with a player or two. Virginia earlier in the game, I'm sure, got away with a player or two. I'm going to, again, the Saints, the reason I bring up the Saints comparison, the Saints commit a face mask penalty on Jared Goff, and it doesn't get called. They, they don't they don't throw the flag for that. And there's an article, by the way, online that I tweeted to, to someone in a response that there were a lot of calls that the Rams should have had, but the Saints got away with in that NFC Championship game. The reason the interference call gets brought up is because it happened during the waning moments of a, of a game. But God forbid, Saints fans don't want to acknowledge that Jared Goff had his face mask pulled or the Saints won the overtime coin toss. Remember, teams that win the coin toss allegedly win games in overtime, but Drew Brees throws a terrible interception in overtime and the Saints lost that football game. Uh, Again, Auburn fans want to complain about the missed double dribble call. I guarantee you Auburn got away with a lot in that game. I'm sure uh, Virginia got away with a lot earlier in the game as well. I, uh, it happens both ways, man. It, it just does. So uh, I don't want to sit here and, and blame the refs. It's too easy of a thing to do, and fans don't ever want to criticize their their players or coaches. They just want to go straight to the refs because that's the easy thing to do. But speaking of the Final Four, which did happen this past weekend, uh, obviously WrestleMania taking place at uh, East Rutherford, New Jersey, and the Giants and Jets Stadium. Uh, could Arrowhead ever host a major event? Could Kauffman Stadium ever host a major event like this? Because over the past few years, we've seen concerts at Arrowhead. It was really exclusively just football. I do recall a Billy Graham event at Arrowhead in 2004, and partly what was so significant about that was because we hardly saw non-football events at Arrowhead, and when Billy Graham came, people were like, whoa, there was another event at Arrowhead that's not football. Uh, and they, they, over the past few years, they've been having concerts at Arrowhead Stadium. Kauffman Stadium has uh, recently uh, been doing concerts. I actually heard a story, and I can confirm this with people from the Royals who've told me this. The Kauffmans, uh, they, they had a concert at Arrowhead years ago. And the Kauffmans were angry because, I guess, the, whoever uh, performed at, at Kauffman that night, they completely messed up the field, and the Kauffmans were angry about that. Uh, now, they brought back concerts recently, and I guess they've made sure, hey, look, let, we got to make sure we take care of the field because we do have baseball that needs to be played. You can't do outdoor concerts in the winter. you got to do it during the baseball season. So they want to make sure they're mindful of the fact that, you know, there is still a baseball season going on and there is a team that plays here. Uh, and they, so far, there has not seemed to be any uh, any issue with that. Uh, but again, could could Arrowhead ever get a Final Four or a WrestleMania um, I will say, uh, if you know, there needs to be a rolling roof that, that that has to happen. Uh, by the way, Arrowhead this summer is getting a big Monster Jam event, and they also had that Top Golf event last year. So they've been doing more and more outside of concerts. Uh, could Arrowhead get a Final Four, or could they get a WrestleMania? Could Kauffman Stadium? I will say this, and I don't know. If anyone from the WWE would care for this, but I could see the WWE looking at Kauffman Stadium and maybe using that uh, that crown on the video board or maybe the fountains as part of their entrance to make it more compelling. 
there aren't a lot of seats there, so it's not like you'd be taking away seats and you could use that as a really nice entrance stage. Uh, I think that'd be very cool to have at Coffin Stadium. So not exactly sure uh, what the um, what the requirement would be. Obviously, they need a rolling roof or some sort of something to keep the cold air out. Although right now, this year in April, not as cold, but other years, you never know in Kansas City. Maybe you would need to push WrestleMania back a bit if you were inclined to do so. But uh, I don't. They just don't seem to have. They want to do it in states uh, that have bigger markets. And I don't know if Kansas City would fit that bill for a WrestleMania, or if the Final Four would ever fit that bill uh, for the NCAA to have that in Kansas City. The NCAA loves having regionals at the Sprint Center. They do. We talked about this last week. They absolutely love it, but. May not be uh, as uh, appealing to have it at Arrowhead and at Kaufman, especially without a rolling roof or, or having it outdoors. Uh, and even if you have a rolling roof, you could still feel the elements of the outdoors, and I think that could be something that maybe plays a factor in, into consideration to having these kinds of events in Kansas City at Kaufman or at Arrowhead. So let me know your thoughts on that. And by the way, speaking of the Final Four, obviously Texas Tech going to the championship for the first time. Obviously their first Final Four ever. And Virginia, lots of talks about about them overcoming that stunning loss as a one seed last year, losing to a 16 seed. And these two now fighting in the uh, championship. Look, I like both teams. I really do. And I, I know a lot of Chiefs fans, they're rooting for Texas Tech because of Mahomes. Uh, I think Virginia is going to pull out in the end. I think it's going to be a very close game. But man, if Virginia has a hard time stopping that Texas Tech offense, which was hot against Michigan State, maybe we see Texas Tech, uh, I don't want to say pull off the upset, because they're a three seed. A three beating a one is nothing unheard of, but uh, I know Virginia is going to be the uh, heavy favorite in this one. Uh, but I think uh, Texas Tech can do some things uh, to maybe pull off that upset and create problems. But again, that would require some defensive issues for Virginia. But I think Virginia is going to be able to pull away in the end. I think it's going to be a one or a two score game with Virginia winning tonight in the championship. Final segment of the show. Let's throw some penalty flags. All right, it looks like living in Oakland has already rubbed off on Antonio Brown. I don't know what the motivation was in doing this, what caused uh, him to want to do this, but he took some shots at Juju Smith-Schuster. Look, Antonio Brown got it his way. We even discussed last week how NFL teams were concerned about this because of how Antonio Brown was able to force himself out of Pittsburgh. Uh, Even though he got it his way, he's still stirring the pot with his former Pittsburgh teammates. This time he's going after, surprisingly, Juju Smith-Schuster. And I think what happened was he brought up the fact that Juju Smith-Schuster won the team MVP award for the Steelers. And then he said that he, quote-unquote, fumbled the playoffs away for the Steelers. Uh, If you remember that Week 16 game against the Saints, the Steelers were on their way to a game-winning drive, but Juju Smith-Schuster with a big catch... Uh, but then he fumbled as he was not down yet. And uh, Antonio Brown, for whatever reason, has taken a shot at, at, at Juju Smith-Schuster for this. Look, I've spent a lot of time criticizing the Steelers for taking Roethlisberger's side and giving him all the power and say over uh, former Steelers offensive coordinator and former Chiefs head coach Todd Haley, obviously publicly criticizing his teammates the way he does. Uh, 
Uh, whatever beef there is with Antonio Brown and the Steelers, it, I mean, now it's Antonio Brown firing the big shots here. This time again at Juju Smith-Schuster. Keep in mind, that was Smith-Schuster's first ever fumble in his young two-year career. And obviously, he made a big, significant improvement his second year. Antonio Brown has fumbled 15 times in his career. So who the hell is he to criticize Juju for all this? Oh, by the way, let's not forget, uh, Antonio Brown says that Juju fumbled the season away, the playoffs away. Last I checked, Antonio Brown quit on the Steelers and didn't play in Week 17. Juju Smith didn't quit, and he still played and practiced in Week 17. So I don't know who Antonio Brown is to criticize, but man... If things go south in Oakland, if things don't go his way, you know what they say about karma, man? Uh, you know what they say. By the way, uh, Juju tweeted in a response, All I ever did was show that man love and respect for from the moment I got into the league. I was genuinely happy for him, too, when he got traded to Oakland with a big contract, and now he takes shots at me on social media. Crazy how that big ego got to, uh, got to be to take shots at people who show you love. SMH. Karma's coming, man. I, I Look, he plays for the Raiders, so I, I just think it's fair to say Karma's coming. You know what else is bad karma? Uh, going after Bret Hart. So, obviously, WrestleMania I mentioned earlier is this weekend. By the way, Brock Lesnar lost. Uh, he lost his title. Uh, might be returning to the UFC soon, so we'll see, but... Uh, a fan uh, on Saturday night when the UFC had, or excuse me, the WWE had their Hall of Fame uh, night. Bret Hart was, I guess, giving a speech Saturday night. And during the speech, somebody gets through security. A fan tackles Bret Hart. Security immediately jumped in the ring and got to this guy. But not just security. There were WWE wrestlers, male and female, many who I don't recognize, because I don't follow wrestling as much anymore, but they got out of their seats to help security, and want, they actually wanted to take shots at this guy for going after Bret Hart. Um, you, you know, look, I, I, I know I said I don't watch wrestling as much, but I know who Bret Hart is. I'm very familiar with his history. Uh, the screw job I know is a big part of his history, unfortunately, but why would anyone ever want to go after Bret Hart is kind of beyond me. Um, what did Bret Hart ever do? This would be like a Chiefs fan wanting to go after Len Dawson. Like, what did Len Dawson ever do to make any Chiefs fan not like him? Uh, this would be like a Chiefs fan hating on Patrick Mahomes. What has Patrick Mahomes ever done to get hated on? I Sure, maybe he's enjoying his celebrity status a little bit, but you can see it's not really going into his head. He's still being humble while he's out there. Um, I mean... This let me just say this too. I get it. These are quote unquote fake wrestlers, but let me just say this: if 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 for whatever reason I want to pick a fight with someone, I'm not picking a fight with a WWE wrestler. Again, I know it's quote unquote fake, but uh, some of these guys, as a hobby, they train mixed martial arts. They're actually friends with a lot of MMA fighters, and they train with them. So some of these guys know how to actually fight. So if you want to, by the way, there's a guy named Braun Strowman. I don't know how big he is in WWE, but this dude got out of his seat. And this dude's huge. I do not want to piss off that guy. That guy went after the fan. Uh, one of several WWE wrestlers who went after the fan. Uh, I just think it's a dumb thing to do, going after fans. Or, not fans, but wrestlers, rather. You get the idea. 
All right, last one here. Uh, this is a more serious one. So Conor McGregor, he announced his retirement, and now he said, "Hey, I'll see you in the octagon." In a tweet, you know what I would love to do? Uh, I, I would love to just quit my job on Twitter and then announce that I want my job back. I would love to do that, but I'm not Conor McGregor, so I can't. Uh, but what Conor has also done on Twitter, he's he's been weird on Twitter. He's he's been involved in a lot of sparring matches with people on Twitter. Uh, recently he's been giving props to certain fighters, uh, while still fighting with other fighters on Twitter. Uh, but he and Habib, if you guys remember Habib, Habib is the guy who Connor went after in the bus attack because Habib had some verbal argument with Connor's friend, Artem Lobov, which again, nothing happened, but Connor was offended and wanted to help his friend, which was dumb. That got him and his friend in trouble. Uh, but Habib was the guy, same guy again, who jumped over the cage and went after Connor's teammates. And some of Habib's teammates attacked Connor McGregor inside the cage. They jumped the cage to get in. Uh, Connor has taken this fight with Habib to another level. Um, he actually posted a, uh, posted wedding photos of Habib and his wife. Uh, and keep in mind, Habib is, uh, is Muslim, which is very important to him. You can see his wife, not in a hijab, but she's covered to the point where you can't even see her face. And Connor says, quote, your wife is a towel mate. And then Habib, who, it might be his manager, Ali Abdulaziz, who's a very controversial manager. He responded on Habib's Twitter account, or maybe it was Habib, uh, bringing up the recent rape allegations against Connor McGregor, calling Connor a rapist, and said that justice will find him guilty and, and the truth will come and all. Boy, uh, look, there are going to be innocent people who are going to get hurt from this. I mean, you're bringing up personal things. Connor, before this, uh, in the in the uh, lead up to the hype be- uh, to the fight between Connor and Habib, Connor was making fun of Habib's uh, Habib's religion, Habib's father, um, his country. Uh, I mean, geez, uh, Connor really does take things far. And you're starting to, by the way, it's no accident that Connor's constantly involved in these kinds of things. The antics with press conferences with certain fighters. If you remember in the Nate Diaz press conference uh, leading up to UFC 202, he and uh, Nate's teammates, they were involved in throwing water bottles, which I guess a kid got hurt from that. And there was, I guess, a lawsuit according to Dana White, which Dana White sometimes blows things out of proportion. Um, but that did happen. Uh, this is a this is an incident where look you're you're now making fun of someone's wife because of the way she dresses in her wedding because of the way she wants to do it in her religion. Again, you don't have to agree with other people's practices for certain things, religious practices, but to bring that up, man, and boy, uh, I mean, now you've pissed off an entire religion, and this is now not about fighting anymore. This is now to a point where it's personal. The UFC has stepped in. By the way, I know it's unconstitutional, but the Nevada State Athletic Commission, because of what happened after the fight where Habib jumped the fence, the Nevada State Athletic Commission, which is governed, they want to limit certain trash talks by fighters, which is very hypocritical because, they're again, they're governed, and that would violate the First Amendment. However, this is the reason why the Nevada State Athletic Commission Wants to do this. And again, now listen. It's a Conor McGregor thing. There are certain fighters out there who... 
maybe they say certain things to other fighters. You know, they use the five-letter P word, or they maybe say F you or, or whatnot. Maybe occasionally they bring in family members, but never to the extent to what, the way Conor McGregor does it. And by the way, uh, Habib's manager, Ali Abdulaziz, is no, by all means, no innocent member either. Uh, this guy's going out there picking up fights with uh, his client's op- opponents, his client's rivals. Twice in Las Vegas buffets, for whatever reason, it's happening in buffets. He's trying to fight Colby Covington, who's a controversial guy, but to do it in publicly the way Ali Abdul Aziz does it, yeah, not not really the way. Uh, but, man, uh, the UFC said they're stepping in, and rightfully so. Look, trash talking is one thing, but this is to another level. It's not even about fighting in the cage anymore. Now it's gotten personal, and it's not a good look at all for the UFC, which just recently signed an extension with ESPN. Some fans want ESPN to get involved. What does ESPN do? ESPN does not control. ESPN just covers the sport. They they air the sport on their broadcast channels on ESPN+. Plus. I don't know what they can really do about this other than cover it and make it a big story and let it be known that it's not a good thing. Trash talking is one thing, man. I know Greg Hardy, uh, when he uh, returned from his NFL suspension... I think he brought up Tom Brady's sister in some interview, and, and thankfully Tom Brady didn't really go crazy about it, but you piss off the wrong guy, man, you, when you bring up someone else's family, it, it's just not a good look, and it could get someone hurt when it's a silly thing to bring up personal things like that. Just my opinion. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the Chiefs Zone Podcast. A big thanks to Daniel Harms from Arrowhead Guys for joining us. A big thanks to you, the listener, for listening to this episode of the Chiefs Zone Podcast. We will be back this Thursday. And we will have Matt Stagner from Arrowhead Pride. He will be on the podcast on Thursday. So be on the lookout for that. Facebook.com slash Farzim Vesugian. That is my Facebook page. Like and follow me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter at Farzine21, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean. Hit the subscribe button, hit the share button as well. Please share the links with your friends on social media. My name is Farzine Vasugian. Big thanks once again to all of you for downloading and listening. I will talk to you on Thursday, as it'll be one of the last episodes before the Chiefs return to team meetings and brief practices on Monday the 15th, coming up very quickly. So we'll talk about that and more on Thursday with Matt Stagner from Arrowhead Pride. Stay tuned for that. Enjoy the rest of your week. I'll talk to you then.